Well, good morning, church. How we doing? All right. Let me wish you all a very happy Father's Day. So listen, this is our very last Sunday in this series that we are calling out of the box. And in this series, we are wrestling with some of the toughest questions that we find in scripture. Last Sunday, we wrestled with what might be one of the toughest questions, and it's the question of suffering. And I wasn't here last week, but I went back and watched that video. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to watch the video. I told Dustin, I'm like, man, you did a great job, but Kelly Harnish, she nailed it. With no easy answer, such an honest glimpse into her world, the suffering that she has experienced in her life and how God meets her there. She shared the quote by C.S. Lewis, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As God shouts to you in your suffering, I pray that last week ministered to your soul. And really, that's, that's my prayer for each and every Sunday as we've explored these questions in this series. As we've explored these questions, because in your questions about God, there's so much to learn about him and so much to learn about yourself. And it is such a massive opportunity for you to experience God if you will choose to wrestle with your questions honestly rather than simply sweep them under the rug or duck the questions altogether. And as you engage in, in these questions, it is, it, is, it is the opportunity before you to more deeply experience who God is, that you would be drawn into deeper relationship with him and into deeper worship of him. Because the bottom line for this entire series is that God is inviting you to, to actually know him in the big questions that every single one of us have. And as you get to know him, you will find that God has a way of, of, of breaking out of the boxes, those neat and tidy boxes that you and I have a habit of putting him into. This morning, we're gonna explore the question, does God play favorites? And we're gonna explore that question through the Old Testament prophet Jonah. If you get our weekly email where we send you the scripture that we look at each Sunday today, that, that email that comes to you. And if you don't get that email and you would like to, you'll get a chance to sign up for that next week as we begin a new series. But, but for this week's email, I, I like how Anna, our communications director, captured the essence of this question. Here's what she wrote in that email. Does God play favorites? Why does it seem that God's only predictability for extending grace is his unpredictability? What do we believe about God's mercy and who deserves it? Jonah, the reluctant prophet, runs from God, unwittingly reveals God's power to a ship full of sailors, stews in a big fish, gives a begrudging warning to a city of his enemies, sparks a full-scale revival, then angrily argues with God for not destroying them. This comedy of errors, in all seriousness, is a tale of God's mercy. God's selection isn't based on worthiness or superiority, but a calling to be a witness and a conduit of his grace for the benefit of those around. So 
does God play favorites? Scripture is full of references about God choosing, choosing people for his purposes. The Bible tells us that God called, God chose the Old Testament patriarch Abraham. We read about that in Genesis chapter 12. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat, treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. God chooses Abraham and then immediately tells him that he, God, would move through Abraham to bless the entire world. And that blessing finds its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus arrives into a Jewish family, a member of this nation that God is building through Abraham. God chooses the nation of Israel. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and, chose, and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read this. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and it will fill your, and, and, and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you if you obey the commands of the Lord your, your, your God and walk in his ways. The Lord will establish you as holy people as he swore he would do. Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord and they will stand in all of you. God says to the people of Israel, follow me and the nations around you are going to notice right down to the geographic location of where God places his people really at the crossroads of the ancient world. God chooses these people and then he gives them all of these peculiar rules. Dress this way. Eat this, but don't eat that. Don't worship the, the numerous gods of your neighbors, which was the norm of the day, but rather worship me alone. And one of the reasons for these peculiar rules was that the nations surrounding Israel or foreigners passing through would see this, this very different way of doing life and say, so what is up with that? And an Israelite could then quite naturally segue into a conversation of, so let me tell you about my God. God chooses Israel to be a lighthouse, to be a witness for him to the rest of the world. The New Testament, as Jesus chooses his closest followers in Mark chapter three, we read, afterward Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. And the scripture goes on to list those names. So just in these couple of verses, God chooses 12, but he's, he's going to send them out to bless and to impact the world. Even, even in, in some of the strongest verses in the New Testament where God talks about choosing people, 
like the book of Ephesians. Paul, Paul begins this letter by saying, hey, I'm writing to you, who, you who have been called, you who have been chosen. In Ephesians chapter one, we see words like this, God loved us and chose us in Christ. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. And at the very same time, Paul ends that letter by saying, hey, pray for me as I go and broadcast the good news to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. We see that in Ephesians chapter six, where Paul writes, ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. And so we see it here yet again. Are you catching the, the, this pattern? That God calls people, God chooses people. It is welcome to the family. Welcome into my, my, my grace and my mercy and love. Now go spread the welcome. No, now go invite others into my grace and mercy and love. Now go live lives of welcome and blessing that'll rock the neighborhood. Can you see that pattern in these scriptures? Here's how we can say it. In scripture, when God chooses a person to experience his love, he also commissions that person to share that love. But what happens when someone says, you know what, I'm down with receiving my welcome into the family. I'm cool with, with receiving God's grace and mercy and love, but that go and spread the welcome Go and invite others into God's grace and mercy and love. Go live a life of blessing. You know what? I'd rather not. What happens then? Well, that gets us to the story of Jonah. See, Jonah is on one hand the worst prophet that we see in the Old Testament. God chooses Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to warn them of God's justice and God's judgment. And Jonah says, nope, not gonna do it. These people of Nineveh are known for their wickedness. Nineveh was the the capital of Assyria. And in the Old Testament, the Assyrians are clearly the bully in the neighborhood. They are clearly an enemy of Israel and Jonah wants no part of going to them. In fact, the city of Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. And Jonah hops a boat to the city of Tarshish, which scholars think is actually in Spain. Jonah's trying to get as far away from this place that God wants him to go. And so God, if you know, if you know the story, uses a fish to both save Jonah from drowning, but also to give Jonah a time out to figure out his priorities. And while, while Jonah, many would find that Jonah's excursion inside a great fish to be incredulous, God has a way of supernaturally making sure that his message gets heard. There are even stories today from parts of of the world where God wants his message heard, like the Muslim world, where there are no churches and beyond the reach of missionaries, there are fantastic stories of Jesus showing up in people's dreams and inviting them to know him. So God has a way of getting his message heard even supernaturally. And so Jonah needs some supernatural help to figure things out. And so that makes Jonah on the one hand probably the worst prophet in the Old Testament, but on the other hand, he's maybe the most successful Old Testament prophet. We first see Jonah in the book of 2 Kings, where Jonah gets to deliver a message of prosperity for Israel, gets to to tell his people some really good news. 
So he's, he's a bit of a hometown hero. But then as we roll into the book of Jonah, in, in Jonah chapter one, these, these sailors who are hauling Jonah to Tarshish figure out that as, they're, as they're, their boat is being swamped by a storm, that, that all of this is happening because of Jonah and they reluctantly throw him overboard. The story says that the sailors were all struck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. So even in Jonah's disobedience, God, God is using him to impact others. And then when Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, he, he passes on God's message of divine justice and the people of Nineveh put a stop to their evil ways and the city of Nineveh experiences widespread revival. Again, Jonah is good at what he does. And so God responds to their repentance by, by not destroying the city. And that puts us in Jonah chapter four. Here's what we see there. Jonah chapter four, verse one. This change of, change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. I love this next line, just kill me now, Lord. Just kill me now, Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. So either Jonah is really angry here or he is a total drama queen or both. Jonah essentially says, God, I, I knew it. I knew that you were going to extend your mercy and your compassion and your love to these people. But, but God, the people of Nineveh, these are the bad guys. My, my people, we are the good guys. And if I've got anything to say about this, these people don't get in on this. Don't get in on God's compassion and mercy and love. Verse four, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God says, Jonah, really? You feel bad about this plant dying, but care nothing about the 120,000 people living in Nineveh in spiritual darkness. How, how does that make any sense? And with that, the book of Jonah ends. Jesus references the story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 40, for as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. 
people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah, Jesus, is here, but you refuse to repent. Jesus actually uses Jonah's story to foreshadow how his own life and death and resurrection would be the way by which God's mercy and compassion and love would would be expressed to mankind. Christ's posture towards those living in, in, in this broken, jacked up world in spiritual darkness is the exact opposite of Jonah's posture. Jonah is not able to see that idea that we established earlier in scripture when God chooses a person to experience his love, he also commissions that person to share that love. Jonah wanted to hang on to, to really hoard God's mercy and compassion and love for himself and for his people. He wanted to decide who got to merit God's blessings. And when he finds out that God's mercy and compassion and love, it doesn't work that way, that God's grace is wildly unpredictable, Jonah is not a happy camper. And it's easy for us to be hard on Jonah. I mean, I mean, God's choosing Jonah to go and share with the Ninevites would be like God asking you to go and share his love to your very worst enemy. Would be like God asking you to go share his love to ISIS. It is a big ask, and God does ask us to share his love with our enemies, but if we can be real here this morning, I don't think that's really our issue, is it? If God says to Jonah, essentially, Jonah, how can you not care about the 120,000 people living in Nineveh in spiritual darkness If that's what God says to Jonah, I think that he says to you and I, how can you not care about your neighbors? How can you not care about your your coworkers? How can you not care about your family members living in spiritual darkness? Why aren't the people living in spiritual darkness in, in the places that the missionaries go that we support, why aren't those people more of a priority for us? Chris Candia, the author that we've been using as a resource for this series, pulls these questions from the story of Jonah. He asks, how often do we express keenness to have a relationship with God, but remain unconcerned about offering the same privilege to others? How often do we express a passion for God, but show very little concern for the people who God loves? How often do we try to hoard rather than share God's blessings? How often do we know what God wants and choose to do the opposite? Please hear me when I say this. I am not trying to guilt trip you this morning. We all struggle with this. I'm not trying to make you feel bad this morning. That's not what I'm attempting to do. I am super conscious every single week to to not load you up with more stuff to do when you come to church. Following Jesus is absolutely about freedom, not making you feel bad or making you feel guilty. But I do wonder when it comes to sharing the life that Jesus has given you, sharing that life through the way in which you live, sharing that life through the words that you speak. 
Let me ask it this way. How do you see the opportunity to share the life that you have in Jesus? Do you see that as a have to or a get to? Because if if you are hearing this conversation as, as me pushing the opportunity, the responsibility to share Christ with those around you as as something that you have to do as a begrudging duty, a begrudging duty that you meet with a sense of guilt, there is no power in that. But if we can change the conversation from have to to get to, that I get to share the life that I'm finding in Jesus, I think that changes things. So how do we do that? How do we change the conversation? And to make this super personal, what helps you personally arrive at get to? What helps you arrive at sharing the life that you have found in Jesus as a privilege? A privilege because of who Jesus is and the fantastic love that he has showered upon you and wants to shower on those around you. And honestly, I think it is a question of joy. See, the things that bring us joy, we typically can't help ourselves. We have to talk about those things. And so so if, if sharing Jesus feels like a have to, an excellent question to explore is, where is your sense of joy? Next week, we're gonna begin a brand new series that I hope helps us talk about these things. A series that is all about living a life of welcome. A series that is all about being a blessing wherever we find ourselves. The more that I learn about what it means to follow Jesus, I am becoming more and more and more convinced that so much of the Great Commission, this this mission that Jesus gives you and I to follow him and to share the life that we have in Jesus, that so much of that Great Commission is simply living lives that are aware of the needs around us and responding with a simple yet genuine Jesus-fueled kindness and welcome and hospitality. And so next week, we're gonna begin to explore some of, some of the, the practical questions of how we can share this life that we have in Jesus. Some of the practical questions that that the story of Jonah raises for us. How do we live lives of kindness and welcome and hospitality? But for this week, I wanna leave you with this. This is an article that I referenced sometime back in February, sent to me by someone from the church. But as I was looking how to end this conversation this morning, I really can't think of a better way to do it. It's an article that talks to the what if. What if we did live lives of radical kindness and welcome and hospitality? What difference could that make? What might that look like? And so this comes from the book Irresistible Faith written by Scott Sauls and Sam Fosnack is gonna come and read for us. What if, collectively, Christians began again to love the world around us as we ourselves have been loved by Jesus? What if, in the spirit of Jesus providing wine at a wedding feast, 
and of the audacious forgiving father throwing a grand feast for the entire community, Christians become known for hosting hospitable, inclusive, and life-giving parties for friends, neighbors, colleagues, strangers, and strugglers. What if, in the spirit of Scripture's vision for doing justly and loving mercy, Christians became widely known as the world's first and most thorough responders whenever a friend, neighbor, colleague, or stranger experiences tragedy such as divorce, unemployment, a crippling diagnosis, a loved one's death, or a rebellious child? What if, in the spirit of Jesus' life and teaching, Christians became widely known not only as the best kind of friends, but as the best kind of enemies, responding to persecution with prayer, to scorn with kindness, to selfishness with generosity, to offense with forgiveness, to hatefulness with grace and love? What if, in the spirit of Jesus, Christians once again became known as those who welcome sinners and eat with them, such that sinners begin to say of Christians, I like them, and I want to be like them. What if, in the spirit of the early church, Christians once again began to enjoy the favor of all people, not because of how like the world they become through assimilation and accommodation, but because of unlike the world they have become through their lives of love and good deeds. And what if, and this is ever so important in consideration of these other what ifs, we realize that the pressure to make such things happen is completely off our shoulders because the ultimate responsibility and power for change has been placed squarely on Jesus's shoulders. If we do this, watch out, because when we do this, we just might become the best kind of dangerous. Thanks, Sam. I love so many lines in that quote. I actually, just for the sake of brevity, had to lose half of those lines. But I think the line that, that speaks to me most is, what if we realize that the pressure of making such things happen is completely off our shoulders because the ultimate responsibility and power for change has been placed squarely on Jesus' shoulders? And while that's a long list, I wonder what is a piece of that? What is one thing off that list that might be a way to more fully embrace the opportunity to share the life that you have in Jesus. What if?